Welcome to The Gathering at Edel. Today's message is part four in our series, How to Pray. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 13. So we've been talking about how to pray. We started, we're in Matthew chapter 6. So if y'all want to turn there, uh, if you've heard the recap once or twice, just keep chain, turning there and you, you can ignore it. But we were talking about how to pray and we find that we feel like this is an essential part of uh, our teaching as we're learning and growing as a church because I think a lot of times churches get the idea of what church is supposed to be based on what other churches are doing, you know? And so, but really when you begin to look at what the church the instructions that Jesus gave to his church, there's really not that many of them. But one of the ones that he said is that my house will be a house of prayer. And so that, that's got to be something crucial. So why are we taking four to six weeks, eight weeks out of our life to learn about prayer? Because Jesus said that my house will be a house of prayer. He also said that the church will take care of the widows and the orphans, you know. And so uh, th- that's uh, big of, of what we do. But there's a lot of things that churches do that we just do it because we think we're supposed to. But this one is crucial. So Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is responding to his disciples. It shows up in Luke chapter 11 where the disciples say, hey, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And so Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And he says, okay, first of all, don't do this. Don't be like the hypocrites who pray out in the open, in the fields. They want to be seen by everybody. They're out in the temple courtyards and they want to be seen and they want to be heard by everybody. And he said, for surely they have received their, their reward. And so they, he said, don't babble. Don't use many and idle words. We talked about it last week. You know, you can hear some people pray and all of a sudden they're using like a dictionary a thesaurus over there to, to make, it, make it sound better and really just pray. Uh, if you're a simple guy, use simple words, right? If you're, if you're educated, use educated words, but just be yourself when you're praying and don't try to impress anybody. Uh, second week, we talked about our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we talked about the first part of the Lord's Prayer. After he, Jesus said, don't do this, this, and this, he said, this then is how you should pray. And he said, when you, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so what we talked about is that when we pray that he, he's our Father, that he was at one point far off. But now we've been brought near to him by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are a son. And so when we pray, we pray as a son to a father, right? So there's a confidence and a hope that comes from when a son talks to his father. So we said do that. And then how do we hallow his name? Once again, not, not really a word that's in my vocabulary. I don't throw that around a whole lot, but it just means to make holy. How do we make the name of God holy? Well, one, we believe him that he's able to do what he said he can do. Right, And then the other one, the, the other main way is that we trust in him. We don't fear as the world fears. And so if we're going to make his name holy, if God said it, then we're going to believe it. We're not going to fear as the world fears. There's lots of apocalypses and viruses and all sorts of things that the world can be afraid of. But we as Christ followers do not fear as the world fears. And so we, we trust in him. Then we said, your kingdom come. This was last week. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And we just said, the kingdom of God is this, that we would preach the good news. We would set the captives free, give sight to the blind and release the oppressed. That was your kingdom come. And there were practical ways of how to do that. And then your will be done. Galatians 2.20 says that, for we have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. So when we're praying, your will be done. We're saying, hey, not, not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, Father, but your will. 
So last week we kind of talked, uh, we said prayer is what keeps us anchored to the Father's heart. That when we drift away and the world will try to pull us away from the Father, but when we drift away that our prayers become more about what we want and what we need instead of how we can be useful to the kingdom. Right? So the purpose of prayer, why are we studying on prayers? Because prayer, the more that we're praying, we're staying anchored to the heart of the Father. When we get away and, and, and we, we drift away, the world pulls us away, all of a sudden our prayers become about what we want and what we need and what makes us feel better and what makes us more comfortable. And we, for, we forget that we're, the goal is to be useful to his kingdom. And so we want to do that. If we reduce our prayers to the outcome of a game, to the passing of a test, to getting a new vehicle or world peace, our wants and our needs, then we reduce God as the creator of the universe, as the alpha, the omega. We reduce him to just a, a wish granter or a personal shopper. Hey, Lord, I want this, 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 and this. When, we, when it's all about us, we reduce who God is in our minds to just a personal shopper who goes and gets what we want. And so the purpose of this teaching is to, to get the right set of minds, the right set in our minds. So and it says, and for those reasons, Jesus' disciples observed his prayer life and said, hey, wait a minute, this guy is getting up early. He's going off by himself. He's praying, and the way that he's talking to the Father is different than I've ever seen before. So I'm going to ask him how to pray. And don't you think it's a lot better sometimes to ask than to be told, right? Like, don't you think it's better if you don't know how to do something to say, hey, can you teach me how to do this? Because the response is a lot better. It would not be very uh, encouraging if someone came up to you and said, hey, Josh, uh, I've been listening to you pray. Let me show you how it's done, right? Like that one, you're, you're doing it all wrong. That would not be encouraging. So Jesus' disciples see him and go, hmm, maybe we've been doing this all wrong because the way that he prays is not the way that we've been praying. And so that's what we're here today, and we're asking ourselves those same questions. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Let it be alive and active. Let it be sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, let it strengthen us today. Let it encourage us. Father, may it draw us closer to you today. In your name we pray. Amen. One of my earliest memories as a child, I don't really remember a whole lot. I remember a lot of like pointless, useless facts. I'm good at that. But like actually things that matter, I'm not great on. And like my earliest memory uh, as, a, as a child was I was about two years old. And I, can re I don't even remember what town we were in, but the time came. I have one brother. He's two years older than me. And so uh, my mom had taken us to uh, the YMCA. That uh, I, We were either like in Baytown, Port Natchez, somewhere down there. I don't really remember. I was two, right? So don't, I'm not dumb. I just, I was two. And so uh, I can remember that it came time to learn how to swim. And so my mom took us to the YMCA and, you know, I, I can remember not all of the details, but I can remember like the way that you learn to swim, at least there, it, it was not very encouraging to me, right? It, it's typical, like, hey, we throw you in the water and someone's in there to kind of help you learn how to turn over and get on your back or whatever. Well, I'm not good at that. And so I, here's what I remember. Earliest memory as a kid is I can remember being in the water, flapping my arms, screaming, sinking, feeling like the entire world is coming to an end for me. 
terrifying. I can remember the terror in me, the terror in all the other kids that are like, bro, what's wrong? It's okay. Just roll over. And I, I like, I just remember that fear of like, oh my goodness. And you know, like you're, you're out of control. And I mean, still to this day, I do not like water. I do not like go swimming. Uh, I, maybe I've gone like twice in the last 10 years. I just don't enjoy swimming. I, I do bathe regularly though. So y'all are safe there, but other water, like I just don't enjoy like, oh, let's go water skiing or out, out on the lake. I just don't, I mean, it sounds fun, but I don't really enjoy it. I do it because uh, my kiddos like it, but I, I just remember that, that terror, that thought. And, and really what it is, is it's not being in control. You know, I, I I also, I don't, I'm not a good skier. I'm the fastest skier on the mountain. I can't turn or stop though. And so there's that same like terror that comes over me and other people around me. Like, oh my gosh, this guy is out of control. But I am the fastest on the mountain, but I just don't go anymore. It terrifies me. But like, there's that sense of like you hop on ice, snow, and and you're not in control anymore. You feel like you're in control. But all of a sudden, something can happen and you're out of control. And, and I, think, I think that's where we are right now in our prayer. Why is this prayer so important? Because what we do when we begin to pray this, all of a sudden, our dependency not, does not become on us, but it becomes on him. Why is it hard to pray? Why is it hard to, to go through this? Because all of a sudden it says, hey, nobody likes to say this, but I'm not in control. I'm dependent on you, Father, to provide everything. And so let's read this and we'll kind of get started with that. The Lord's Prayer, it says, Jesus said, Therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer is about aligning our heart and our minds and surrender to him. But a lot of times our prayers look a lot like two-year-old me, screaming, flapping, wailing. The Bible says gnashing of teeth. That's what our prayers become. I mean, remember Jesus is going into John. It's in John chapter 11. He's going to Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead three days. They say Jesus took forever, right? So he's going up there. And then all of a sudden it says that Mary is out of control. She needs to be consoled. There's weeping. It's, it's really bad. And she comes running up like, Jesus, if only you had been here three days earlier, then you could have saved him. And Jesus says, hey, it's okay. He's just asleep. He walks up to Lazarus. Hey, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. Why is our prayers important? Because what it does is it aligns us, our hearts and our minds and surrender to him so that all of a sudden when we pray, we pray with the boldness and the confidence as Jesus did. Jesus did not freak out that Lazarus was dead for three days, even though the world had freaked out. Mary was going crazy, had to be consoled, crying, weeping, gnashing of teeth. She had to be consoled and Jesus didn't even budge. The disciples on the boat, the storm is coming and Jesus is down sleeping and they run down there like, Jesus, what's going on? We're all going to die. Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith, right? And he just speaks to the wind, the waves, and they obey. The disciples are amazed. You see that when we pray this way, all of a sudden we become a lot less like a two-year-old screaming, 
crying, flapping our arms, wailing, and all of a sudden we walk as a son and as a daughter. And there's a confidence and a boldness. Are there times where we need to just like go all in at it? Absolutely. But you look at Jesus' life when he modeled prayer. He was by himself praying to the Father. He spoke to things and things came into existence. He didn't lower himself to the standards of the world. So today we're looking at this. This is our daily bread. It says, give us today our daily bread. When we pray this part of the Lord's Prayer, we're saying that we are totally and completely dependent on God to provide for our needs every day. You see, this is hard to pray because we, we, we want to think that we are in control of our own destiny, right? We, we hear the words, you know, carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Even I love Dave Ramsey and Dave Ramsey has a lot of things. And the one thing that he says that bothers me is though, you know, he's like, Oh, all these things. He goes, but the one thing you can count on is at the end of the day for you to be able to go out there, whatever, like shoot and skin and eat your meat, you know, like, and do it yourself. You still can't. The hard part on praying this prayer is to realize the fact that I am not in control, that, that I am completely dependent on the Lord to provide for all of my needs every single day. When Jesus would say, give us this day our daily bread, Immediately, his audience would go back to Exodus chapter 16, where, where they, they come out of the Red Sea. They, they, they get to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. It says the Red Sea then swallows up the Egyptian armies, and they, they cross into the desert. And, okay, there's no water. God fixes that. So then they come to this place, and they're like, I think, I think they're about 45 days out. And they're, they start to grumble and say, why didn't you just leave us there in Egypt? I mean, we had, we got to sit by pots of boiling meat. We had all the meat that we wanted. And now here we are, we're out here in the desert. You brought us out here to die. And then in Exodus chapter 16, the Lord says this, his reply to them, he says, then the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they will prepare what they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. I mean, can, can you imagine that? To, to be at that level of dependence, that the very food that you're going to eat that day has to come from the Lord. And what happens is we in America like to think that it all depends on us. That I can go out and I can do that if I just work hard, pull myself up by the bootstraps, and I just go out and I work two, three jobs and this and that, and that's all fine and dandy. But at the end of the day, you're still dependent on him. He's still the one that provides favor and opportunity for you. He's still the one that teaches you and shows you how to, how to use your money, how to spend it, how to make the most of it. I mean, you, you can even get even more basic than that. Like you can go do all those things, but at the moment God says your breath is done, then your breath is done. I mean, we, we are completely dependent. We can make all the plans. We can make all the retirement plans that we want. But then at the end of the day, we're still dependent on him. It's not how good you are with money. It's not your job, your education, your popularity. It's none of that. It's all dependent on him. And the problem here in America is that we have made it all about us and not enough about him. We have to come to that realization where we have to pray, God, today, you know what I need today. I want nothing more 
and I want nothing less. Give us today our daily bread. It's pretty evident by what we get one or two days of cold weather, and man, now all of a sudden all the milk's gone. All the bread's gone. All, like they, 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 they didn't get their daily bread. They, they got everybody's daily bread, you know? For what? It's just going to go bad. Isn't that the same lesson that the Israelites had to learn in Egypt? He said, hey, gather up, or, or in the desert, he said, gather up enough for today. And it, it's, it's two quarts per, 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 per person. Gather it up, prepare it, but you have to eat it all today because t- tomorrow will be bad. And sure enough, they didn't listen, right? They, they thought they knew better. They store it all up. They save some for the next day just in case the bread didn't come. And all of a sudden it says there were worms and mold and it went bad and it stank. <laughs> you know, like, what are we storing up that the worms are getting to, that's beginning to stink, that we think is good, we think is right? When we come to that realization of he is my provision for every day. Nothing less, but nothing more. I, th- I think that's why you see a lot of times, a, a lot of people ask the question on why, why do we see, why would we not see miracles in America like they do other places? And I, I, was, in, I was in Kenya and I asked that question because a lot of people asked me that. And he said, this guy said, he, he, he wasn't like some bishop of a thousand churches. He was a taxi driver that was driving me around for the day. And I asked him that question. I knew he was a Christian. He said, because you can live on one miracle for three or four years. You guys will talk about it, social media, put it all everywhere. And you guys will live on that one miracle for three to five years. He said, in Africa, in Kenya today, I need to see the Lord move today and I need to see him move tomorrow and I need to see him move the next day. You see, we have become so self-reliant. We, we are building houses and properties and food systems and all these things because we think that we're in control. We have lost the fact Why do we not see God moving in our lives on a daily basis? Because we have already told him, hey, we've got this part of this handled. We don't say that because that would make us jerks, but but we say it by our actions. We say it by the way we spend our finances, the way we save up and store up and do all the things. And we say, God, we got this part of it. Don't worry. Help me with this. Help me with that. Bread rained from heaven that morning. And every morning after that, except on the Sabbath, for 40 years. Can you imagine that? 40 years going out and your food is there. The faithfulness of God is every day. And we are dependent and it is necessary every single day. I cannot wake up tomorrow and not be relying on God to provide for what I need that day. Because the truth of the matter is it's not just for you. If you look right there in Exodus, if you want to turn, I'll give, you some, I'll give you a moment. But if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 16. If you look at verse 17, chapter 16, verses, verse 17 and 18. 
It said, so the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some little. When they measured it by courts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. You see that, that our daily bread is not just for us. Because it says some gathered a lot, some gathered a little. There was no surplus, there was no lack. And isn't that the picture of the early church in Acts chapter 2? It says that they met daily and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, expectation of miracles. And it says that they sold their possessions and they gave to everyone who was in need and that no one was in need. Do, Do you understand that our daily bread is not just the bread for you? but it's the bread for those that you come in contact with. If you begin to view your daily bread as not just for me, but for you, because you're going to give me my provision for today. And my provision for today is going to include, maybe it's $5 for a homeless person. Maybe it's a kind word to a struggling mom or struggling dad at the grocery store. Maybe it's the knowledge of how to change a flat tire. Your provision for the day. When we say, give us today our daily bread, what we're saying is everything that I need for today, I entrust that you're going to give it to me. I trust that you're going to give me what I need today. If I need to, to, to know a word, you're going to give it to me. If I, if I need to know how to change a tire, you're going to give it to me today. If I need $5 for a homeless person, I'm not going to be so scared that I don't just give generously that $5 because I know that you gave it to me for today. I'm not saying that we zero out our bank account every day. But what I'm saying is that we live in such a way that we live an open-handed lifestyle that says that everything that I have is not mine. It's only mine for the time that he sees fit. And then whoever needs it can have it. Whoever the father tells me to give it to, it's theirs. And I don't care if it's a car or a hammer. I don't care if it's a $100 gift card or 25 cents. If I have it, it's yours. Because our daily bread is not about us. Our daily bread includes not only our needs, but the needs of those around us. That God is using you and me to provide the needs of others. You see that when all of a sudden, that when we begin to pray and we become anchored to the heart of the Father, our prayers become less about us and what we want and what we need and more about how can we be useful to the kingdom of God. Our daily bread it's not just for us, but it's for others. We are called to live lives of gratitude to God and generosity towards others. You see, when we begin to see him as our provider and our provision, then all of a sudden our gratitude goes way up. We become a lot more thankful for even the little things, things that, that everybody else would look past. Uh, we, we were at a basketball game yesterday, me and a couple of the kiddos, and uh, Strawn's not traditionally a powerhouse in basketball. Uh, Not only are they not a powerhouse, they really just don't care about basketball. Uh, They care about how hard can they foul the other team, you know, or like, how many technicals can we get today? You know, that's the only thing that makes it interesting. Well, me and uh, Hattie, we were sitting there and she noticed like a, uh, you know, like the non-slip pad so that you can like, you rub your feet on before you go into the game. The other team had that. We don't have that, right? And she's like, why don't we have that? I'm like, because we don't care about basketball. And she's like, huh. I was like, babe, that thing costs like 20 bucks. Like, it's, it's not a money issue. It's just nobody cares. 
And what happens is over time, Strawn has just like overlooked all the best, you know, all the little things that you see like a good basketball program have, they don't make, it doesn't make them a better basketball program, but it's just the attention to detail. All of a sudden you're like, oh, that's pretty neat. You know, now we have all the little details in football, right? Like we got all the little special things, you know, the little $4,000 massager that you just rub all, you know, in basketball, where is it? Oh, no one can find it. But all of a sudden, when you begin to see God as your ultimate provider, all of a sudden you begin to become thankful for even the little things. The things that, that other people take for you know, granted, they don't even recognize it. Like Lingleville is who we were playing. I mean, they don't, even, they don't even think twice about that thing. They just know they walk over there and boom, they're done, right? And they get out to play. But all of a sudden, when you begin to rely on him for your provision on a daily basis, all of a sudden you begin to become a lot more thankful for all the things that you didn't even notice before. I mean, like we, we stick our key in our car and it turns and it starts. We don't even think about that. But, but shouldn't there be a moment that we go, that we stick it in and we turn it and we go, man, Lord, thank you for that. Because I did that this week and it didn't start. It's like, hmm, okay. Hey, Lauren, drive an hour from Strawn. Come pick me up. We got to figure this out, you know. But, but all of a sudden, when you begin to see him as your provider, you stick the key in, you turn it, and it starts. All of a sudden, you go, oh, man, Lord, thank you. Today's, today's going to be a good day. You know, like, like the Jewish people had, I, I forget the exact number, but there's like hundreds of different prayers of blessings that they have. Like, you know, they sit down for a meal and they, have a, they say a blessing. There's actually one when they, you know, you go to the bathroom, you're like, all right, Lord, thanks for that. You know, whatever, however they say it. But like there's a blessing for every little detail because what it does, it begins to sow in their hearts gratitude. And they begin to see that God is the ultimate provider. So here we go. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Part of our daily walk as Christ followers is repentance. Not because we, get to, we want to harp on all the bad things that we thought, we said, and we did, but so that we can continually be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Uh, I... I'm big on grace and mercy. Like, you're going to know that about me. Grace, mercy, love of God. Man, I'm, I'm the goodness of God. I'm all about that. And so I don't generally love to talk about repentance and, you know, like quiet, like reflection. You know, like I just repent and move on. But, but there's part of our walk that it's a, a discipline to be continually walking in a lifestyle of repentance. We don't spend an hour a day Thinking back, okay, man, what did I say yesterday? All these things. But what happens is all of a sudden we, we begin to just walk. And when we say something that we know we shouldn't, we, we repent of it immediately. When we talk to our wives a certain way, we, we repent of it immediately. We don't, we don't like let it build up to the next day and, oh, all right, we, all right, we, we sit down at, at, in front of our bed, time to pray and confess all of our sins. You see, but there is a part where it says, forgive us of our debts. Part of our prayer time, is to say, Father, man, forgive me for the words that I said. Forgive me for those thoughts, for the, the way that I said that, the way that I treated my wife, the way that I spoke to my kids. Not to harp on all the bad things we did, but so that we can be continually washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. That's the purpose of repentance. It's to make sure that there's nothing between us and God, right? That, that I am... 
I'm clean, I'm washed pure, and there's no unbroken fellowship between me and the Father because it says that the Father does not fellowship with sin. Jesus dined with sinners, but he called them to a better place. And he said, go your way and sin no more. We're in the same boat. Like We do not want anything that causes us to separate from God. And honestly, a lot of the separation is on our part. Have you ever noticed when, you, when you've talked bad about somebody or you've wronged somebody, what do you tend to do? Avoid that person, right? Like, oh man, I, I, didn't, do, I didn't do right by them. And, and so you, you kind of start avoiding them and kind of start going away from them. That's the same thing that, that when we don't walk in a lifestyle of repentance, we begin to put space between us and the Father. Because the Father never goes anywhere. He's always there with welcome arms a ring and a robe to welcome his son back. The separation is caused by the sin and the sin then causes us to get further away from him because of what it does to us when it's unrepented. So it says, forgive us of our debts. We need to take time to make sure that, that we're repenting of our sins, a lifestyle of repentance. Re- repentance is not so that you can have a clear conscience. Like, like we don't get to just, we don't say all these things so that I can go, Whew, okay, I feel better about myself now. No way. Forgiveness, repentance is so that we can, uh, we, so we don't give the enemy room to operate in our lives. Okay, so, so when, we, when we sin, when we make choices, we, we just pretty much give the, the enemy an open door, right? Like, hey, we've allowed this in our life. I, I've allowed this, and so now we've given the enemy an, an, an opportunity to operate in our lives. And so, we walk in repentance so that we can be washed clean by the blood of the lamb, but also so that we can deny access to our lives and our family's lives to the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We walk in forgiveness, not in condemnation. We seek forgiveness so that there's no broken fellowship with our father. We want to walk in complete unity with him. This part of the Lord's prayer, it says, and forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. There's two parts. The first one's easy, right? Because God is full of grace and mercy towards us. We have unlimited access to unlimited forgiveness, as one of my pastors used to preach on. We have unlimited access to unlimited forgiveness. Forgive us of our debts. That one's easy, right? Because it just involves us and God. Like, no big deal. The second one's difficult because it requires us to love and forgive just as Jesus did. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 18, there's a parable where Jesus is teaching his disciples. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. It says, Then Peter approached him, being Jesus, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of the servant had compassion, released him, and forgave the loan. The servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell face down, and he began begging him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. And when the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had the same mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed them over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Whew, that's harsh. <laughs> Forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven those, our, our, as we have forgiven our debtors. You see, when we pray this, we are saying that I remember that I was lost, that I owe a big debt that I could not ever pay, and that I will make a conscious choice to do the same for others in my life. You see that you and I do not have the right to hold unforgiveness towards someone, to, to withhold forgiveness for, for someone. We have been forgiven of so much. And, and we don't have that right. Now, you see that when we pray this prayer, we're saying, Father, forgive me as I have also forgiven those who have sinned against me. Forgive me as I have also forgiven those who have sinned me. So this is saying that, hey, I have forgiven them, and so I want to receive your forgiveness too. And Jesus teaches on that more, and we'll, we'll end next week on that topic. But what we're saying is that when, I, when we're praying this, it says, that you and I do not have the right to withhold forgiveness from anyone, that whoever has wronged me, I release it. And here's the thing. If you told me your story, I would be on your side. If you told me how they treated you, what they stole from you, how they hurt you, I would be on your side. I would be like, let's get the pitchforks. Let's go raise some hell, right? Like that's what I would say. But that's not what I get to say. That's not what we get to do. It doesn't matter what happened because the debt that they owe you pales in comparison to the debt that you owe the Lord. And he freely forgives you every time. Not only every time, but it's already forgiven. Like Jesus has already paid the debt for your sins for all of time. For the, the way that you speak to your wife tomorrow, it's paid for. The way that you cheat on your taxes in three years, it's paid for. Everything has already been paid for freely. We have to walk in a lifestyle that says that you're already forgiven. The way that my wife is going to speak to me in two years, it's already forgiven. That one's a tough one. She's looking at me like, yeah, you better be practicing. I'm writing this one down. But I don't get to wait till the moment that she speaks to me that way. Throw a big baby pouting fit, and then in three days, a week, two weeks later, then forgive her. Because our sins have already been forgiven. And when we walk in a lifestyle like this, as Jesus did, then what we're saying is that it doesn't matter what you say or do to me, you're going to be forgiven. And that's tough. We don't forgive because others because they deserve to be forgiven. We forgive because we have been forgiven. 
I, I can tell you, I don't know what they said to you, did to you, stole from you, how they hurt you, but I can tell you right now, they do not deserve to be forgiven. And neither do you. But it's not your choice on who gets to be forgiven. Forgiveness, let me just go with this because this is a big one because there's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. But can I say that forgiveness is not pretending that it didn't happen and that you weren't hurt. Forgiveness does not just dismiss like, oh no, that, that's, not, that's not right. You, you don't feel that way. Forgiveness is not dismissing the way that they hurt you. Forgiveness is not condoning a person's actions. We don't, we don't make excuses for people's actions. They did it. It was wrong. But that still doesn't change your reaction to it. Forgiveness is not relieving a person of their responsibilities. My, my kids can do something. They are completely forgiven. But if they back into a tree in our driveway, they still have to replace the taillight. They're forgiven. I don't hold it against them. He still gets to drive my car. Hypothetically, if that were really a real life situation, right? He still gets to drive my car. But he still has to put a taillight in. It doesn't mean I haven't forgiven him that I don't love him. Forgiveness is not relieving a person of their responsibilities. I mean, can you imagine what the world looks like when you forgive somebody that doesn't deserve it? I mean, the, the, the one that just took the entire world by storm was last year, this guy named Brant Jean. You probably don't know that name until I say his brother was Botham Jean. Was killed by Amber Geiger. And then you go, oh yeah. You see, because the name is less important than the action. Do y'all remember this court case where it's the sentencing hearing and Brant Jean gets up there and he begins to say these things to, to this lady that killed his brother. And he said, I don't hate you. I don't want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. I want you to find Jesus. I want you to love God. And then he asked the judge, hey, can I hug her? And man, he, this guy, he's young. He just walks up to her. You can't make out what they say, but they just embrace one another. And they both begin to weep. And the world went nuts that somebody would do that. What would the world say? Not even everybody out there, but what would the world say if the people in this room would do that every day? What? What if all of a sudden the lady that cuts in front of you at the pickup line, you don't honk your horn, you don't give them the stare, you just keep on loving them. You know, what? Can, why did the world go crazy? Because the world is desperate to see a love like that. And that love is in each and every one of us. We forgive because we have been forgiven. How do we forgive? These are practical steps. It comes right out of that parable. 
Matthew 18, verses 27, it says, Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. We have compassion towards one another. When somebody does something to us, the only way that we're going to get forgiveness to flow out of us is to have compassion on them. If you look at Jesus, and every time in the Bible where it says Jesus had compassion, then there was an action that followed. You see, there's an old saying that says, hurt people, hurt people. When all of a sudden, not that we excuse their actions or we condone their actions, but all of a sudden when we see the person who hurt us as a person, not the jerk in the car in front of us, but when we begin to see them as a person that's been hurt, that's wounded, that's not walking in their full potential, then all of a sudden that compassion will move us to forgiveness. We release them. And sometimes you have to say this audibly. They don't owe you anything. Their debt has been wiped out. There is nothing more freeing than being able to pronounce that over somebody. Than to, than to say, hey, you, you don't owe me anything. It's okay. No, but, but let me do it. No, no, it's okay. Because all, all of a sudden when you see that person as a person, They've been hurt. They've been wounded. They're being used by the enemy to hurt you. All of a sudden, when you see them as a person, you have compassion on them. And then all of a sudden, their debt means nothing to you anymore. And then, then the last one, it says, and he forgave him the loan. Want the best for them. Pray for them. Here's a good uh, way to tell if you've actually forgiven someone. If you can pray for them, if you can rejoice when they get the promotion over you, when you can rejoice that they got a new car, even though they stole money from you, that is the, the, the gauge. If you have truly forgiven someone, if you can be happy for them and man, you, you can go, no, you don't know what my dad did to me. You don't know what my mom did. You're right. I don't. And if I did, I, I, it would be hard. But what I can see is that when you release them of that, there is a blessing that comes by not walking in bitterness, a blessing that comes with in walking and not withholding forgiveness from people. They say that, that unforgiveness is like filling a cup of poison intended for them, but you drink it yourself. I don't know if you've noticed, but most people that you have unforgiveness towards, they're out there living their best life. They don't even know that you hate them. And you're over here, it's just killing you inside, eating you up, affecting every decision, every thought that you have. You can't even pray to God because all of a sudden you get alone and you try to pray to him and all of a sudden all you can think about is that person. And they're out there just living out on the lake, doing a good thing. They don't even care. Unforgiveness affects you way more than it affects them. Here's my challenge to you today and we're gonna end with this. Our daily bread, what is it that you are in need of today? And how can you be a blessing today? We're going to take a moment after this, after I say these, to, to just honestly think that. Because it, it's one thing to hear it and go, all right, great, take notes, good. And then to walk out of this door and it's gone. So we're going to take time. What are you in need of today? And who can you be a blessing to today? 
And then on forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Just because we have unlimited access to unlimited forgiveness does not mean that we are free to sin. Paul said that even though we have that freedom, that his grace will not be in vain for me. Just because it's already forgiven, it's already paid for, does not mean that we get to sin. So I'll just ask you, what, what area in your life would you like to repent of? And you might, you might look at me and say, man, nothing, I'm good. Awesome. I want to give you that opportunity today. And then who are you withholding forgiveness from? I've sat down with many people, hundreds of people in ministry. All different things have, are going on in their lives. And I get to this question and not one person has ever said nobody. Hey, who are you withholding forgiveness from? At first they might say, no, I'm good. And all of a sudden they go, mm, wait a minute. Not my brother. And all of a sudden they begin to go, oh yeah, and this person. And this person, and this coach, this teacher. My ex-wife. You, like, you think you're good until all of a sudden you have an honest conversation. So that's what we're going to do. Once you close your eyes... What is it that you are in need of today? Who can you be a blessing to today? Are there any areas that you would like to repent of? And who are you withholding forgiveness from? So Father, we just come before you today. We ask you to speak to us. We are completely dependent on you. And Father, we say that as you speak to us, we will be faithful to obey. Just as your faithfulness is every day, Father, give us this obedience in this moment to do as you have commanded. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.